Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Pet Zoo Vine for September 10th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifley. Good evening, sir. All right, glad to have you on the show tonight. Got tons of things to discuss. And also, we're going to discuss politics across the globe with our uh, frequent and one of our favorite guests, Mr. Evan Scrimshaw of um, Scrimshaw Unfiltered, The Lines. He writes probably other places, posts on social media, but Evan's going to come here in about 20 minutes, and he's going to talk to us about some elections here in America and some elections um, really in, in our own continent and different continents as well. Uh, but until then, we've got a ton of things to discuss, and one topic that um, we have been discussing for the past roughly two years because of a decision the Supreme Court made is um, abortion rights, health care surrounding that, and we're going to dis- discuss another facet of this today. Um, this past week, Republicans are looking, I'm sure, at polling that they've done in addition to election results, which they've seen at the ballot box. And they're saying that their position is not popular. Um, and so they're trying to come up with messaging, which is tricky because they could change their position, which somebody as right-wing as Sean Hannity suggests that they do. But there's a lot of folks in their party that wouldn't want to do that, so they have to try to frame this debate in a different manner. And so in, instead of using the, their preferred term that they've used for many, many years now, pro-life, they're trying to test out, I believe, pro-baby and pro-family is the way to still state the same stance that they took on, you know, reproductive rights, not, you know, infant, you know, care, which those two terms kind of sound like. Catherine, I'm, I'm sure when you heard this, you knew about it, and you've probably discussed it in other circles as well. What is your take on this? Oh, it's eyewash. You know, it's just oh, we're not very popular the way we talk about things, so we need to talk about it differently. But it's not really going to change their stance on uh, abortion care and health care. It's just changing the way they talk about it. It's, you know, it's uh, discouraging and disappointing use of language to trick people is my impression. And you're absolutely yeah, well, right. I, they 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 vote against all kinds of, um, you know, care for uh, families, uh, food stamps, uh, any kind of health care um, policies. They're pretty much standardly against, but they're going to try to convince people that they're really pro-family and pro-baby. Um, it, it, it's it's um, the worst side of politics, in my opinion. 
Yeah, because when I hear pro-baby and pro-family, to me it sounds like, okay, you're going to pay for daycare. You're going to pay for parental leave, either maternity or paternity leave in some way. You may give tax credits for raising the children or expanding the tax credits in some way, but this entails none of that. So it's kind of a, a bait and a switch. Um, right. Tim, let's kind of look at, look at the other side of that. Go ahead, go ahead, Catherine. No, that's right. That's exactly what it is. It's a bait and switch. Yeah. Just wanted um, to confirm that, yeah. Sure. And, and Tim, now let's talk about this as a political maneuver. It's not a policy maneuver. Is it likely to really fool anybody to work? No, message, because messaging is not their problem, even though there are some of them that actually do believe if, if we – you know, frame our messaging better, uh, we'll be fine. No, no, their problem is that the majority of the American people don't approve of what the Supreme Court did with Roe v. Wade, and, and, and so far, at least, the clear majority of voters don't approve of these restrictive laws that, that you know, uh, Republican state legislatures are passing. It's the policy that people don't approve of. Now, yeah. They don't care about the messaging. Uh, they, they are, I don't know, David, they're, they are facing then, if, if they you know, do this, not only the wrath of voters who oppose them, you know, just outright, but they, they are also turning off even moderates who basically see an abusive government taking a right away from them, you know, their right to choose. And, and and they don't seem to grasp that. Voters historically don't like having rights taken away from them. This was a constitutional right enshrined in law for 50 years. And 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 they think that messaging is, is going to fix that. Well, I got bad news for them. The voters have already started telling them at the polls, no, it's not going to fix it, and we don't think you're listening to us. It's a toxic formula there, ain't it? Yeah, I know that, I guess back in the 90s, Frank Luns came around, and he really, you know, came up with some phrases that, that, that kind of did work. I mean, you know, the, the death tax um, for, for estate taxes and stuff like that. Some of those, you know, semantic tricks work. This just doesn't feel like it is going to, um, you know, work in any way. To me, probably their best shot is just to somehow get people not to talk about it or vote on it. I don't know if that's realistic, but if you're not going to change your position, just not talking about an issue that you're kind of like 60-40 or, or maybe even higher than closer to 70-30 and a lot of polls on this issue um, mm-hmm. is your only hope. I will say this. Now, I do an assignment. I do several assignments uh, throughout the time, but one's called a political cartoon. And this past time, without divulging any you know, personal information to any student, I noticed that I did not out of about 25 submissions, I've not gotten any to do with reproductive rights. I've gotten a ton about inflation. Which to me, I'm kind of like, you know, we've kind of, we've hit a point where inflation's not this big economic issue anymore. In my mind, uh, maybe in some economists' minds, but obviously, I think in the minds of voters, that may still be an issue. So that's probably where the Republicans need to do is kind of just 
see if they can change topics. Once again, don't know if it's going to work, but they don't have a lot of good choices unless they're willing to, you know, kind yeah. of evolve on this issue. Well, let's keep well, sticking and moving and trying to um, get to some more stuff. Um, just talking about the election overall. Early in the week, and I don't watch MSNBC a lot, but for some reason I came in and um, turned on Morning Joe, and all Joe Scarborough and the rest of the folks on there, they were just in a tizzy about a brand new Washington – I'm sorry, Wall Street Journal poll showing that um, the race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump was tied at 46. And at face value, it didn't look like good numbers, but then there was more to the story. Um, Catherine, did you see the initial report, or did you hear the report later about that poll? I didn't hear a lot about it this week, and I apologize for not um, preparing as well for today, for tonight's show as I should. Um, so I don't have a lot of comment on it. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll turn mm-hmm. to Tim then. Tim, did, did you, I guess, talk about the initial reports, and then there was reports later. Uh, what was your take on what kind of began to evolve around this poll? You know, one that re- one thing uh, set of figures that really, really just stuck out to me. This the the respondents in this poll listed Biden's approval at forty two percent, approval fifty seven percent, disapproval. Same people rated the Trump presidency 48% approving, 51% disapproved. Uh, I call BS right there. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I could, I could see where they would come up with some of the other stuff, but that right there, that that sent alarm bells off for me, and so I, I started thinking, you know, this 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 can't be right. What do you think? Yeah, and I believe I sent that same number to y'all. That that, that, that was so high, mm-hmm. like the Trump approval rating has never been, mm-hmm. you know, 48. And, and then you found out that first, Tony Fabrizio's firm, who's Donald Trump's poster, Fabrizio Lee, right. conducted the poll. Now, now obviously, right. a lot of times, news services, I guess sometimes they may just get one side, but a lot of times they'll get a Republican and a Democratic pollster, and they'll work together and and sometimes they'll give the Democratic view and the Republican view of that poll, but it's they're working with the same numbers. Then and so that, but that was suspect because he's currently working for Donald Trump. It's not like he's a Republican pollster who's not involved in the presidential cycle this time. Um, which, like I, I think, you know, Peter Hart kind of steps away when he would do polls um, for news services. But then you find out that the poll actually had a far more Republican sample. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was a it was really just too much of a Republican sample to be reflective of the electorate. And so I just was really surprised because while the Wall Street Journal editorial page does lean conservative, the actual reporting you think is usually a little more accurate and balanced. And so I was really surprised that they would want to be associated. And, and then I was kind of surprised that folks on MSNBC were so reactionary to it from the beginning. That, that's what got me. And this was not just a Wall Street Journal poll. This was a Wall Street Journal NBC poll. And, and yeah. nor, normally, 
normally those two outfits just do a better job than this. I, I'm I'm really I'm I'm disappointed. I, I I really am. Yeah, I saw who was conducting the poll, and uh, <laughs> you know, come on, come on. What they think he would do? I'm well, you know. Well, and I think there is this narrative that where folks are like, you know, Democrats are hoping for this, you know, Superman that doesn't exist and they're stuck with, you know, 79, 80-year-old Joe Biden. Um, But once again, this Superman doesn't exist, is not going to run. And so I think it kind of skews the numbers. Catherine, do you kind of get that sense that there's like this waiting for the Godot and that this figure is just not there? Yeah, and I just think um, it's disappointing for the Wall Street Journal, for NBC, and as you said, for MSNBC, for anyone, any outlet to um, not look more closely at a poll before talking about it and before wringing their hands about it and clutching their pearls. Obviously, this poll was uh, questionable. So to take the, the results and, and go with them is just uh, it's irresponsible, in my opinion. Like, be more careful about what you're reporting. It just sounds like a way to get to gin up, you know, interest and uh and attention yeah and then of course cnn has a poll just a you know day or two later probably in the field almost all overlapping and it also showed some you know pretty close numbers and we're kind of seeing that in a lot of these polls um the the one thing i will say that's kind of accurate about these polls is they moved away pretty much from the Republican primary race. They may still ask about it, wow. but it's pretty much less focused on Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, Dude. where most everybody expects the race to be. But that is the yeah. end poll. I know you saw it as well, Tim. Kind of speak to it. Well, here here is one major difference. Now, the CNN poll had Trump at 47 and Biden at 46. If you're scratching your head about that, here's something else they said. In that poll, Trump basically gets about all the Republicans. They made a very, very high number of Republicans uh, in, the, in the high 90s. Uh, basically, he's right where he was in 2020 at 47%. Uh, he's, he's hitting his former ceiling in this poll not that he'll stay there uh but that's where he is now biden in this poll gets 87 percent of democrats now now what's important about that 95 percent of democrats voted for him in 2020 so that's why biden is at 46 percent because Half-hearted Democrats are not on board with him yet, and I thought CNN laid laid that out very well. So I'd give this poll a lot more credence because they they said here it is, and, and here's here's why that is. Uh, yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, but but that 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 explains it to me right there, David. 
Yeah, and another thing is the um, the the poll that, or maybe it was a breakout of CNN, or it could have been another poll because there's so many, and, and we're just going to get it's like a fire hose getting turned on us. But it talked about turnout and how it was real interesting, and I think this is a phenomenon that's really shown why we're winning special elections, off-year elections we do better than expected. It showed that Democrats were winning like 100% voters by a decent margin. Like if you vote every time, Joe Biden was winning those folks. But Mm -hmm. if you vote most of the time, it was closer. And then the folks that are kind of like – and eh, they'll vote one time, they won't vote three more times, and they're just very sporadic. Donald Trump was winning those voters. Now, we used to be like, oh, if everybody votes, we'll win. Now it's seeming like the more hard-to-turn-out voters have become more Republican voters. They're new, there's a different population, and the voters that are just going to show up like clockwork are now Democratic voters. And, and so this is kind of changing the dynamic of everything. Um, Catherine, what did you make of those numbers? Well, that's an interesting. That's an interesting shift because you're you're right. We've always thought that there were more Democrats than Republicans, and if everybody voted, we would win. Uh, it's interesting to see any kind of shift in that. I'd like to hear more. You know, see more data on it because I wonder if you know there's some. You know. Uh, well. You know, Ghost in the and, machine, as I say. And Tim, before uh, you speak um, to that, I'm I bet not. it is state to state. I bet a state like Mississippi, it's not really true. You really do need more people to vote to get more Democrats. A state like Vermont, you know, it's probably I, uber I think true. It, ahead, I think it's a, no, I think it's a dynamic that's been pushed by Donald Trump himself. He has spent so much time talking about, well, it's rigged. Well, you know, they set it up or we're going to lose anyway. I really do think there's a growing number Uh, of voters of his who are saying, well, what's the point in even voting? It wouldn't take a large amount of them to to really affect things. And I kind of think that's... That's what's playing out. I, I think that might be what's going on. Trump's own big mouth is costing him votes by with that particular subject. If, if people think the election is rigged, if it's preordained, there's going to be casual voters that say, well, then I ain't going to vote. What do you yeah, think? I think yeah. that's a good point. And another interesting thing about this I think is going to be if you have voters that are harder to get out, then you want to make it easier for them to vote. You want them to yeah. vote by mail. You want yeah, them to vote for a two-week period. You want them to not yeah. have to show their you know, photo ID and birth certificate and water bill and on and on and on and on. And so, therefore, who's creating the obstacles they make in some places could be hurting themselves. And so at some point they may have to decide – what makes sense just because it's the right and the wrong thing to do, and then what makes sense because it's hurting us? And it's going to be an interesting discussion. I noticed that um, a few weeks ago we are going to have Lowell Field on the show in a few weeks that Glenn Youngkin, Republican governor of Virginia, has been trying to push um, more mail-in voting for Republicans, trying to 
um, you know, kind of go against this phenomenon that Donald Trump has created. And so all these little dynamics are just going to be really interesting to watch as we get into polling and, and start looking at these numbers. Well, we'll get back to this discussion in just a bit, but it is time for our guest, our favorite guest from north of the border in Canada. Welcome back to the Kudzu Vine, Evan Scrimshaw. Hey, can you guys hear me? We can yeah. hear you great. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Thanks uh, for having me on. Evan, we know. We're doing well in Georgia. We're doing great because we know. In addition to um, politics, you love to follow sports, including American football. And in Georgia, we have had quite a weekend. We are five and zero in major college and pro football this week. Perfect, which that doesn't happen a lot, particularly since we've added more teams. And uh, and Alabama losing obviously makes your life a little bit easier. Uh, down the line, if you're a uh, if you're a Bulldogs fan, so that's obviously been a good weekend. Yeah, yeah, and and Tim's probably quite sad that Clemson's falling apart as well. So um, yeah, all kind of good things there. But but of course, it's not a, a sports show. Catherine will probably leave us if it was a sports show. We got to get back to politics. <laughs> and so right off the bat, even though I want to talk to you about some American politics, I'm going to wait. I'm going to ask you an international question first, and then come back with American stuff after Catherine and Tim talk, but I want to go south of the border. The Mexico presidential election appears to be one of the more interesting in a while because it sounds like it's almost guaranteed that Mexico will elect its first female president. Tell us about the candidates, the dynamics of that race, so our listeners will know. So Mexico, it's a similar presidential system with uh, a Congress and, and everything like America. Um, it's similarly first past the post, so you don't have right choice voting. And so basically what happens is the two main blocks run joint candidates. Um, the current president, you know, is being succeeded um, as the sort of candidate of the broad left, you might want to describe it, by a woman named uh, Claudia Scheinbaum. I'm apologizing in advance for my pronunciation of these names. I'm really bad at um, Spanish names. Um, but what's interesting is the opposition. So, yes, the left nominating a, a, a female candidate, not the biggest surprise they would want that after, uh, you know, the success of male candidates. But the right have also nominated a woman who has explicitly said they need a woman to handle the crime and, and, and issues around that in Mexico City. And so it's going to be a super interesting dynamic of people who have been in the national spotlight but who haven't necessarily had not, uh, you know, national roles. The opposition leader is a senator, an opposition senator, the you know, sort of successor candidate to the left – is essentially the governor, the official title is head of government in Mexico City, but it's essentially the equivalent of, you know, a, a relatively small state governor in America, but it's very influential because it's the capital. And so it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting race. It's kind of unclear who's going to win. That's the other thing. It's, it's not immediately obvious. And we haven't had any polls with these specific combinations, but yeah, Mexico is going to elect a female president barring uh, a complete, you know, third party independent candidate coming out of nowhere. And very interesting in the context of America, never had one. Yeah. And, and, and you might not even know the answer to this. So I'm asking anyway, 
Um, since there's obviously what happens in Mexico, that's the driving force for this election. But since we have NAFTA and the America, Mexico, Canada free trade agreement or whatever it got renamed, you know, us three large countries in this continent are all tied together, whether some folks like it or not. Um, how would this the outcome of the selection affect Canada and Mexico? I'm sorry, let Canada and America is neighbors and trading partners. I mean, potentially a right wing, the, the opposition winning might tamp down all of this. We're going to, you know, invade Mexico with drones to kill drug dealers. Talk that we're seeing on the right. For trade perspective, I mean, I think the Biden Trudeau. Almo sort of triumvirate. They work well together. Um, there are issues, but there are always issues when you deal when you're dealing with a trade pact where the Mexican economy is just like fairly significantly different than the Canadian and American ones. But there's a, I mean, from a from a from the perspective of, of uh, you know a Democrat, uh, you know you want the left to win, keep good relations with Biden. Um, if you're a Republican and or you would just like the sort of noise to be tamped down on the uh, on all the ludicrous invasion talk, you know, a, a right wing candidate who has started to talk more and more about, you know, law and order issues might not be the worst thing from that perspective. But I, I mean, the thing about the Canadian uh, American dynamic, which is also true of the broader North American dynamic with Mexico is our countries have too much importance to really let any individual leader screw with the dynamic too much, right? Like Trump came in saying all this bombastic stuff about NAFTA and then Trudeau was able to talk him down to essentially NAFTA, but we're going to call it a new thing, but we're going to keep most of the provisions that we cared about anyways. Yes. Well, I just wish one of the candidates would say, we're going to build a wall between America and Mexico. We're going to make America pay for it. But it's going to be such a piece of hot garbage, pieces of it are going to fall over one year. And they would already kept their promise. Um, so, you know. All right. Well, I'm going to pass this over to Catherine. We'll pass it to Tim, and then I may clean up with some more American politics after that. Catherine? Hey, Evan. Thanks for being on tonight. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Always good to have a, our Canadian neighbors represented on Kudzu Vine. Um, I wanted to ask you about. The New Zealand, uh, is it prime minister or president? Or I'm not sure what they call that leader. Um, prime minister. How that, how that um, election is looking. So that one's really interesting because Jacinda Ardern, the for, now former leader, came in in 2017 at a very tight election in 2020, rode a wave of contentment with the handling of COVID to big – to, to a majority government in a proportional representation voting system, which is an incredibly impressive result. But basically, the wheels have come off. She resigned at the beginning of the year. Her party, the New Zealand Labor Party, um, got a boost when they when they had the new leader, but the boost is kind of falling apart. It looks like what's going to end up happening is uh, it looks like the right's going to govern. That's not a lock, but it looks pretty certain that the right is going to be able to cobble together a government. Um, the interesting thing is that this sort of iteration of the right is pretty, like, pretty solidly more right wing than the previous editions. 
of the national government. That's the name of the party, but it's they're, they're basically they're conservatives. Um, the the old national party was very moderate, sensible, reasonable. They were the ones who brought uh, gay marriage to New Zealand. Uh, this this is going to be a new form of national, and the best case scenario for anyone on the left is that when voters actually clue in to the campaign properly, they'll notice, but it doesn't look good. There's been a lot of sort of incompetence and issues in the last uh, three years, and it's just a really stark reminder of how quickly things can fall apart in politics, because if anyone would have said national would have been in a position to maybe win the 2023 election on election night 2020, uh, we would have looked at you like you're like you had four heads, <laughs> and now they're favored to win. So, you know, a, a, a week is a, is a lifetime in politics. It's a true statement, well, as much as right. it's cliche. Okay, well, I'm going to pass it to Tim for he's got a whole bunch of questions for you. I appreciate the insight into New Zealand. Thank you. Glad to do it. Okay, Evan, uh, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Uh, just glad to glad to watch football. So glad to have it back. On All Sunday. right. All right. Um, I'm going to uh, ask you one question about Canada before I come south of the border. Um, Prime Minister Trudeau, of course, is a strong supporter of NATO involvement in Ukraine. And he reiterated that in no uncertain terms, as that was the main reason he went to the G20 summit. How does the average Canadian feel about the government's support of NATO in Ukraine? It's the one, it's basically the one issue in this country that has not been polarized and, and made into a partisan game. We have cross-party support from, you know, from both like our left-wing party and, and our conservatives that this is a necessary thing to do. It's fortunately avoided, you know, most of the partisan issues. And frankly, the conservatives are much more likely to complain that the liberals don't spend enough on defense as opposed to, you know, them spending too much or opposing further investments. Um, the people are behind it. We have Canada has a, a significant Ukrainian population, um, both in uh-huh. the city of Montreal and then um, out in sort of Winnipeg, Manitoba, in the prairies. And so the combination of high Ukrainian populations, uh, our deputy prime minister is actually Ukrainian, um, and then just sort of older Canadians view uh, Russia skeptically because of the Cold War. Younger Canadians are on social media and are seeing the travesties that the Russians perpetuated, especially very early in the war. The Conservatives, fortunately, are acting you know, responsibly, and so the public have stayed on side. Yeah. I, I wish our Republicans would have just heard what you said. Maybe they could uh, take some pointers on that, but that's another story. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Basically, everyone in the Conservative Party of Canada is acting like Mitch McConnell, which is what we need. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, coming south of the border uh, now into U.S. politics, um, it appears that Democrats are in imminent danger 
of losing the majority in the U.S. Senate next year. I mean, this this particular election where, you know, the the, the calendar looks a little tough for us and, and, and the, the geography looks a little tough for us. Do you, do you see any way the Democrats hold the Senate? Yes, but I don't want to oversell this. Democrats have uh-huh. like a 20, 25% chance of winning it. Like, uh-huh. they have a, a real shot. They have a credible shot. They have a, you know, they, 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 they have a shot in the general range of what Trump had going into election night 2016 as of right now. Mm-hmm. The advantage so, is, well, one, thank God John Fetterman won in 2022, and thank God Raphael Warnock won in 2022, mm-hmm. because the only reason we have a path to the Senate is because we gained Fetterman's seat and black voters still turned out in a December runoff for uh, the Reverend. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, pointing to one to one race in particular, this really had me worried. That is Ohio. It's been tough sledding for Democrats up there for almost a decade. I mean, uh, the working people that that used to be the backbone of of the party up there have deserted the Democrats in droves. Uh, all that being said, is there any way? In a presidential election year, in particular, that Sherrod Brown can survive. So, I am lower on Sherrod's chances than consensus because the presidential uh-huh. year thing really does matter. Um, Republican turnout in if you if you uh, for people who've driven through Ohio, the I seventy one is the highway that's with Cleveland and Cincinnati. Everything says in the I-71 is the places that have been super right trending. It's the places where culturally conservative former Democrats exist who have now voted for Trump. They don't turn out as much in midterms. They certainly don't turn out as much for, you know, a random August um, abortion referendum. So if those voters turn out for Trump, that's going to be hard for, for Sherrod to try and pull this off. The two cases for him are, one, he did outrun – uh, even Obama in 2012, and Obama did very well in Ohio uh, and did well in the Midwest and did well with white working class voters. And two, um, there are a lot of suburban votes to go get. There are a lot of pro-choice votes to go get, right? Um, and you could see a thing where there is like you're threading the needle and that's a tough thing to do. And I certainly don't think it's favorite by any means, but there is a universe in which he can, you know, thread the needle, not, you know, keep enough of that sort of old ancestral democratic vote on the idea that he's, you know, going to stand up to Biden or that he's, you know, uh, going to put workers first while also taking advantage of the GOP's massive abortion problem and, you know, getting, taking advantage of those, um, you know, Romney Biden voters in places like Cincinnati, Columbus, and the suburbs of both those mm-hmm. cities. It's possible. The big problem is that we need to turn out with black voters. I don't know that the Biden campaign is going to invest enough to make it sort of competitive, but it is possible because the other thing, of course, is that Donald Trump is not exactly likely to be the world's best 
candidate next time around for his various um, legal follies. Hmm. Okay, I'm I'm gonna uh, ask you one more question, and then I'm gonna leave uh, on the table this wealth of other American political stuff that David can talk to you about. And I'm gonna get off script just a little bit because I'm gonna go out with a sports question. I mean, because you're you're an and I, I consider you uh, an NFL pundit. So so here we go. I, I just in watching today. I still think that you, that the Chicago Bears and the Houston Texans are the two worst teams in the NFL. Am I right about that? I mean, nothing that happened in Houston today should inspire any reason to move you <laughs> off of that position. The counterpoint is that one, the Arizona Cardinals exist, and despite the fact that you know they nearly talked me out of my survivor pool, uh, they still look really bad outside of that one. Um, scoop, uh, fumble return for a touchdown. But two, no, the Bears look terrible. Like I, I'm a Packers fan, so that was incredibly fun for me that I got to turn that game off. But uh, yeah, no, Bears fans <laughs> who were like, no, we, 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 we didn't have to keep the number one pick. We, you know, Justin Fields is the guy. Uh, let's 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 pump the brakes on Fields here, guys. Let's just pump the brakes, okay? Let's let's calm down. Yeah, let's see what we're yeah, and- going. With. Yeah, and 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 having having witnessed uh, that that same game, I, I've I've got to agree with you, David. Let me throw it back to you on that one, buddy. All right, before I ask my questions, I'll go ahead and tell you, Justin Fields, when he was in high school, was not even the best high school quarterback in a twenty-five mile radius. That's how tough a time he's had. Trevor Lawrence was just <laughs> up the road in Cartersville. And so he was in his shadow. So when you were in somebody's shadow in high school, uh, imagine now being in the pros and expecting to be the man. Um, well, let's get back to politics. Um, and, and Tim asked about a great uh, Senate race in Ohio. Another really interesting Senate race is in Arizona. And because it's going to be a three-way race, that makes it even more fascinating. We do have Blake Masters in the race. We may get Kerry Lake in the race. What a primary that would be. There are so many facets to this thing with everybody's favorite clothes seller online, the incumbent, uh, Kirsten Cinema, and then Ruben Gallego, who's really caught the attention of a lot of Democrats across the country. Just lay this thing out for us. So I'm going to slightly press you on the idea that it's for sure a three-way. Cinema isn't hasn't it out she's running again she might people very like vehemently disagree on whether she's going to like i have you know people in dc i would consider you know knowledgeable people no one there is convinced she's running or not people vehemently disagree i wouldn't for sure assume it so let's say for the sake of this that she is you're going to have a complete better republican either black masters or carrie like i don't really think it matters for the purposes of the point i'm about to make because even though Kerry Lake was a better candidate than Blake Masters in 2022, all of the like stolen election stuff makes her basically as bad of a candidate in 2024 as Masters. So we can just use them interchangeably. Um, Gay is a good candidate. He's done well in his uh, suburban Phoenix or uh, urban Phoenix seats, uh, the various combinations of. He's, uh, he's raising some decent amount of money, and the key thing is that the Democratic establishment 
hate cinema at this point. And cinema, because cinema chose to leave the Democratic Party, I don't really get the argument that she's going to pull a lot of Democrats with her if she does run. Because there is some evidence, and I need to do a deeper dive, but from various times when Canadian elections have been similar things, that the incumbent actually, that uh, an incumbent running again as an independent in this kind of situation actually pulls more money, or pulls pulls more votes, sorry, not money, from the challenging party than the challenger party, right? This would be sort of social, socially liberal Arizonans who are worried about Carrie Lake, you know, who reluctantly voted for Lake in 2022 because, you know, they're, they were worried that Kenny Hobbs is going to be too left wing, but, you know, look at Blake Masters and go, oh, I mean, it's really hard that I'm voting. Like, I really don't like that I'm voting for this guy. So she could be a home for sort of these reluctant Republicans, which would just split the Republican vote. Yeah, yeah, it looks like he's consolidating the Biden vote fairly strongly. And the big thing is, of course, is that any poll right now, all of which show Gaio consolidating that vote very well, they ignore the, like, very basic point that Joe Biden is going to do a rally, presumably many, many, many rallies with Gaio over the course of 2024. Arizona is a key presidential swing state. The second Ruben, the second Ruben gets a uh, gets a photo standing beside Biden right arms you know arms around each other uh cinema's cinema's remaining democratic support evaporates right the second that biden officially announced annoyance sorry uh gallo he he shoots up i I think cinema is going to take more votes from republicans and democrats i actually think that cinema's candidacy is a net negative for arizona republicans and i certainly think that um but the thing is that if they're running Black Masters and Carrie Lake, even a two-way race, they're still massive underdogs because their candidates are nutters. Yeah, I, I agree with you on Kristen, uh, Kirsten Cinema. Now, as far as Black Masters and Carrie Lake, Carrie Lake may be a better candidate than Black Masters, but I think it's also important to remember Mark Kelly may have been, as an incumbent, a much stronger candidate than Katie Hobbs. No disrespect to Governor Hobbs, it's just she wasn't the incumbent, and so that may have been why she ran a little um, better because of uh, the incumbent. And and Carrie Lake was and Carrie Lake was being funded by DC Republicans, whereas Blake Masters wasn't getting funded by uh, Mitch McConnell, which does matter. Yeah, yeah, and he and, and he was pretty dreadful. His, he didn't connect even in his campaign commercials, which was his people. Uh, getting to, you know, framing. Well, let me talk about another state real quick, and this is a race where Democrats are almost assuredly going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a Democratic senator replacing Diane Feinstein, but we don't know which uh, Democrat, and a poll actually came out that shows it a very close race between Adam Schiff and Katie Porter. We may talk about this, uh, you know, on our own, but we want to hear your thoughts first on how this will all fall out. So there's, like, a lot of questions in this primary because it's not, like, a a traditional primary because it's the California top two system. So in theory, it could be a general election of two Democrats if the GOP vote just scatters amongst a bunch of no-name candidates. If it consolidates and the leading candidate gets, you know, uh, 
gets 22%, then it could be just whoever the Democrat is, the lead Democrat gets there. I suspect Schiff will come first amongst Democrats in the primary. I don't know that that means that he is going to then be the only Democrat on the ballot in November. It could be uh, it could be a Democratic lockout. It could be him versus probably Katie Porter. Barbara Lee is also like a very sort of interesting case. She is supposed to be the candidate of Northern California. She's supposed to be the candidate of the left. I say supposed to be because she's also like in her 70s, which is – a little bit of an inauspicious um, place for a candidate of the left to be when the whole reason that we're replacing DiFi is her age. Um, but she's a really interesting thing because she's not raising money. Schiff and Porter are Schiff because he was a former committee chair, has deep fundraising pockets, and Katie Porter because she is, you know, a whiteboard mom and therefore, you know, was a – and and has and has just basically banked a bunch of recurring donations that a lot of the class of 2018 freshmen have. Um, Lee doesn't have the money, but in theory, she has the San Francisco political machine behind her. If she can activate that, it becomes a three-way race, and that hurts Katie Porter. I think I'd rather be shift. Uh, Porter is much stronger of a candidate than I was expecting her to be, but I still think it's Schiff just because I think he's going to win. He's going to be the leading Democrat, which means that if it becomes a top two situation, uh, or w- which means that if Republicans get a candidate in the top two, it's them. And the thing about Porter is that, yes, Republicans, if it becomes both of them on the ballot in November, yes, Republicans hate Adam Schiff. But they also don't like Katie Porter. They find her shtick to be deeply annoying, too. And they don't like the fact that they embarrass Republicans very often. So in that case, I think I think I'd rather be Schiff, but there's a lot of there's a lot of runway left to be run on that on that race. Yes. Well, I've got more to say on it, but I'm going to wait and have it with our discussion because I want to ask about one more race. And this is not a Senate race. This is for the presidential electoral votes, but I do think the governor's race will be tied to that pretty tight, and that is the state of North Carolina. If, you know, the Biden campaign had to pick one state that Donald Trump won that they probably could, you know, it's the best shot to flip, I would think it would be North Carolina. What's your thoughts on North Carolina? So the weird thing with North Carolina is that it's incredibly important but also incredibly kind of unimportant. Um, there's a governor's race there. The Republican is um, – lightly put a crazy person. Um, so that's not exactly great. The thing is, North Carolina also doesn't have a Senate race, and it's kind of big enough that you that you do have to spend a, a you know decent amount of money to compete there. And the problem is, because it doesn't have a Senate race, there is some question of, well, should the Biden campaign, like, will the Biden campaign really be there in North Carolina? Given that it doesn't, there is almost no circumstance, if not straight up no circumstance, where North Carolina will be the tipping point, will be the 270th electoral college vote, and there's no Senate seat, and there's likely to be a dearth of uh, competitive House seats because of the imminent uh, GOP redraw. I mean, I know I was wrong to say 2020. I know there will be momentum and a push for the idea of 
spending the North Carolina money in Texas because Ted Cruz exists, right? And the lack of tendency does, I think, fairly dramatically limit the amount that Biden is actually going to go there. Yeah, I do think it's such an interesting race because, you know, North Carolina is was supposed to be the next Virginia, and then Georgia kind of became the next Virginia. But North Carolina, just given its demographics as far as the educated uh, college-educated voters, seems like it'll get there. And I do think the governor tricks is so complicated because Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, I think he's going to be the nominee. He is a nut job, but he's an African-American nut job. And so, therefore, if people are like representation matters, which you hear that phrase a lot, then what if voters say, I want to see the first African-American governor and they elect a right-wing nut job you know, to have diversity, which the Republicans are kind of against? And so it, it creates just this weird dynamic on so many you know, scores. I think we can – I think Herschel Walker did a fairly good job of dispelling the idea that uh, – that voters will reward Republicans for running black candidates when that when those candidates are also nuts. Well, I, I agree with you on this, but I'll say this as a Georgia Democrat, I'm so glad that Raphael Warnock faced Herschel Walker and not John Ossoff. Because what if that race was so close and there were enough people that said representation matters and they said they voted because Raphael Warnock was an African American candidate, you got African American candidate either way. It's kind of like our Mexican um, presidential election, um, and, and so I, I think it's interesting. And so we, you know, and if races get down to a point, everything matters, not just you know one big thing. Well, Evan, before you leave us tonight, tell us where you can be read, where where you're at in social media. Give our listeners all those places. So Twitter. Uh, I'm still calling it Twitter. It's still Twitter. This is like when Prince was named a symbol. The artist formerly known as Twitter, I don't care. It's still Twitter. Um, uh, on Twitter, at East Grimshaw. Um, the lines.com for all my NFL work for this season. Um, you can just go to the lines.com slash author slash Evan dash Grimshaw for a full list of all my articles. But you should check out the whole site because there's a lot of great writers there. Uh, Scrimshaw scripted.substack.com. For most of Canadian politics thoughts now, but once the primaries dig in and then obviously in the general election, we'll get deep into American politics again, plus some British and Australian politics when the when events justify in those places. Um, but, yeah, mostly just follow me on Twitter. I live tweet sporting events and tilt about teams that cost me money, but it's fun. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll make a deal with uh, Elon Musk. If he can put out a triple album in six months, we'll call it X instead of Twitter. But until he didn't do that, then he's a prince, and we'll keep on it, Twitter. Well, Evan, thanks so much for coming on. We're going to keep reading, and we're going to get you on sooner than later because eventually the Brits are going to have that prime minister election, which to me is going to be the one of the most interesting international elections in the next year or so. Yeah, and of course the the primaries will get interesting. Well, hopefully the primaries will get interesting, um, just for my sake. But no, I love coming on. So whenever you want to have me, just uh, always ask. I'll always say yes. All right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank sir. you, Evan. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. Yes, Evan Scrimshaw of his own Substack, Evan Scrimshaw Unscripted, and then of course 
uh, the lines. Of course, if you want to hear about sports, including more Justin Field thoughts and everything else, he's there too. <laughs> well, let's leave it with our thoughts because I've got a bunch on this California Senate race. I find it fascinating. Um, and, yes, I am in the bag for one of the candidates. I read her book or listened to her book and just really amazed by her. But this California race, we saw, Paul, it's about a one-point race, but neither candidate is even in the mid to high 20s in that first poll we got. But but um, Adam Schiff, within the margin of error, leads Katie Porter. Um, and then everybody's below. Even Barbara Lee is third above the highest polling Republican, which I believe is former baseball player Steve Garvey, didn't even know he was a politician. Um, Catherine, what do you make of this California uh, Senate race? Well, I, you know, I, uh, I think that um, Schiff has a lot more visibility than uh, Porter. I just feel like I see him on uh, the news more, and so I think that might. Uh, have an impact on his um, polling. And, um, I mean, I think we'll be happy with either one, right? I think I think either one will be a, an outstanding candidate and senator. Um, as far as, like, the Republican, I mean, I guess we'll have to see how this jungle primary works out, but I think the chances are that we're going to end up with two Democrats in the race. Yeah. um, Tim, you saw the poll as well. Um, Once again, I didn't even know Steve Garvey was, uh, I guess, even a politician. I'll be honest. When I first remember, you know, seeing, I guess, pro baseball, Steve Garvey was old then. And I'm now, some of them might consider me kind of old now. So he seems like he's, quite old to be replacing um, uh, but I guess the uh, Republicans in California have to take what they can get. What's your take on this dynamic? Well, first of all, yes, I agree with you. I consider you to be an old man. Now, that being said, <laughs> that being said, um, there, there, is, there is one little correction I want to make. Steve Garvey is at 7%. There is also another Republican. He's a, a big party contributor out there, a businessman by the name of James Bradley, who is also at 7%. And there's uh, one more guy that's an attorney. Um, I believe his name is, is Early, and, and he's like at, at, at 5%. So the the highest polling Republicans are, are even right now with with Barbara Lee. Um, Schiff and Porter, both of them have their base in Los Angeles. Uh, I think Schiff's district is like Hollywood, Burbank, the upwardly mobile district. Uh, Porter's district is the beach district out there. For, for those of you from L.A. Uh, that w- would already know that, uh, basically the, the beach area. Uh, Barbara Lee's power base is up in Northern California. You would think that she would be polling better because Northern California candidates historically do pretty darn well in California politics. Uh, 
but she just hasn't caught on. She hasn't really raised money like Evan mentioned, and I just don't know what's going on with her. I, I would have thought she would have run a better race. But it's looking, really looking, like two Democrats are going to face off uh, after the jungle primary is over, and it's going to be Schiff, and it's going to be Porter. And I'm with Catherine. I'm perfectly fine with either one, although I guess I prefer Schiff a little bit. Um, you, you know who who is really on pins and needles, guys, is Governor Newsom. He wants yeah. no part of having to appoint someone because mm-hmm. – if you do that, you're going to make somebody mad. No, no matter what you do, and and you know he he he's got thoughts about his own future. There, w- wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, I, apparently he announced today that he would not, um, and he would not appoint if Diane Feinstein, you know, were to resign or something else. God forbid, happened to her health. Um, well, even worse yeah. that. He would uh, he would appoint a placeholder that would not run. I guess I maybe has somebody in mind, and I think he's already said that it would be an African American woman. So it's not Barbara Lee, and then it would not be um, Katie Porter because she only fits one of those criteria, and it would not be Adam Schiff because he fits none of those criteria. So you know, if something happened, although I kind of just I kind of this gut feeling that Don Feinstein and Mitch McConnell both serve out their terms. And this is a lot of conjecture, so we get back to the race. Um, I, I do think it's going to be two Democrats. It looks like it's going to be the two of them. I do wonder if there's a dynamic factor, because I just get the idea that Adam Schiff is about as exciting as a form letter, and Katie Porter is different. She's the only single parent in the um, senator house, and so she brings this different perspective, and she's just one of these kind of people that, she doesn't mind talking. She's dynamic. And in a state like Cal- – really any of our 50 states, but especially in a state like California that likes big personality because it contains Hollywood and not that she by any means Hollywood with, a, I guess, an Iowa background, doesn't her personality maybe give her an edge, particularly in a one-on-one race with Adam Schiff? What do you think, Catherine? I disagree. I mean, I, I'm not – I think you, you've got – Katie Porter pegged pretty well, but I don't find uh, Schiff to be dull or um, I, I find him very interesting when I see him on um, the news and he's very um, articulate and sometimes very fiery. Um, so I think it's a pretty good matchup myself. Yeah, I mean, it could be, and it'll be interesting to see. Now, one other dynamic, Tim, you were talking about the districts. Um, uh, apparently, you know, Schiff does come more from L.A. County, where the area has been right. pretty Democratic for quite a while. Porter comes from Orange County, which is that trending area that is really used to be very Republican. I mean, the, the heart of, you know, Reagan country. And now, um, you know, trending and persuadable, and she's won in this tough district. Is there even though California is so democratic, is it valuable, maybe even more on a nationwide perspective, getting someone that can speak to persuadable voters? I kind of see like a totally different, you know, John Fetterman, Connor Lamb kind of dynamic here. Yeah, the the the, the, the one one thing that's probably assisting Schiff was you, you know his 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 work with with the impeachment stuff. 
he's become something of a hero yeah. to a lot of Democrats, and it's raised his profile up so much that that's the first thing that people think about with him, and it overcomes what I I, I think is her advantage in 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 the personality stuff. She's uh she's very outgoing. Uh, she's uh very very progressive. Uh, and progressives, uh, you know, really really love her. Uh, but but uh, party people seem seem to like Kim. They both raise a ton of money. I I, I think this thing is is right now too close to call. Uh, re- regardless of who they're representing or or what's going on, I just think that right now this thing is is is, is too close to call. I wonder when it gets down to both of them though. If gender might play a part in this. You know, I mentioned this on the show last week to our guests. Alan Cranston was the last white man to represent the state of California in in the U.S. Uh, Senate. <laughs> That's been a while back. Uh, California is a trend-setting state. They led the year of the woman. When you know Feinstein and Boxer first got elected, they they brought they elected an African American woman to the U.S. Senate that is now the Vice President of the United States. They they have a, a Hispanic U.S. Senator. I think her gender might be very advantageous. Or am yeah. I off base? I don't think you are, and I think the main thing is you want to make that top two primary. As long as the Republican vote doesn't consolidate and you have this big party donor and Steve Garvey and the other person, you know, 7% here, 7% there, before you know it, you're in the high teens. Whoa. Uh, Republic, California mm-hmm. Republicans, you really got something going there. Well, now, um, there's one thing, David. One thing, though, David, that poll shows that, like, one-third of the voters – are undecided, and and yeah. if, you know if, if if we're looking at California, that one third is mostly Democratic. I still yeah. don't see how a Republican gets there, even if one consolidates their vote against these two. Oh, oh, it was it was a joke because you know I mean the, yeah, I mean, any major party should be doing better than the teams in any state. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, if, if if it was our, if it was us in Wyoming, I'd be like, well, we're not teams. That's that's pitiful. Um, so, but we're going to actually have uh, Steve Singizer on the show in a few weeks, and he's of course going to talk about this along with all kinds of other, other education issues because I think this is going to be one of the more interesting races, even though the partisan outcome of it may not be much in debate. Next week, let me preview the show. We're probably going to be on a little bit early on Saturday. So it'll drop into your feed if you listen to it, a podcast during the day on Saturday. But um, history professor from West Georgia University is going to join us again, Daniel K. Williams. And he wrote this really interesting piece on how religious attendance has affected politics in recent years. Um, just really groundbreaking stuff. And it got he wrote it in Carrollton, Georgia, and it got published in the Atlantic, one of the uh, real thought leaders out of uh, the metropolitan New York area. So um, we're excited about having Dr. Williams on the show again to discuss this article and more. But until next week, been the Kudzu Fund.
Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. What a strong act.